welcome back to an A to Z of UK TV drama with me, Andy. And me, Martin. How are you doing, Andy? I'm good. I've been to New Zealand and back in less time than it takes a lamb to shake its tail. Or ah, oh. two shakes about lamb's tail. That's yes, it. I almost <laughs> got the metaphor. Two shakes, and there's a lot of lambs in that New exactly. Zealand, I recall. Exactly, that's what I was thinking, but I still got it wrong. <laughs> Although, can we export them? I don't know. Can we import them? I don't know. Who Have we got a bargain? Have we got a deal? Who knows? We have got a beautiful blue passport now, though. Beautiful blue passport. Did you, but did you, and on the way home, you that's... you edited Moonbase 3. So no, you, on the way out. On the way out, edited. you edited. Yeah, oh. I edited Moonbase 3 whilst flying over Iraq. Wow. And other countries on the way to India, yeah. So Which exciting, felt... isn't it? I mean, you well, know, I our listeners would never have known. They would never have known. I think it's actually quite sad. But... The person on the next seat was going, what the actual... <laughs> yeah, and that was my boyfriend. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to, I'm going to edit this Moonbase 3 podcast. Well, there we are. There we are. See, the, yeah. the, amount, of, the amount of sacrifice that is made to bring... The A to Z to your ear holes. It's amazing. In such in such a professional, timely manner. Actually, we have been timely because we have just taken a mid-season break, have we not? After a fashion, yes. Okay, well, actually, a little more than a mid-season break. Um, quite a few months later, we are starting an A to Z series two, part two. Yeah, life happens. Things happen. Anyway, back to the show. Right. I've got one phrase to say to you, Martin, oh, okay. and, that is, and that is, there's been a murder. Uh, there's been a murder. That's it. There's been a murder. Indeed. Yes, yes. And, and the fog, the fog, uh, the fog is closing in, Andrew. Oh, well done. Honestly, could you just do it all in Scottish? It's, it's feeling very cosy. Uh, I, I, I was once, com- I, I, you know that thing where you talk to people and you, and you kind of mimic how they talk? Yeah, I just remember, dear Sheila, dear Sheila, once telling me that that I I had a, a very convincing Renfrewshire accent, and I, and I thought it's only because you have a Renfrewshire accent, <laughs> and what it is <laughs> I is I, I, I would sort of oh, oh really Sheila how how are you <laughs> no it wasn't that bad although uh, I have just been um, listening to a big finish which had the worst Scots accent I've ever heard. Oh, so, I, so I'm actually starting to think I could possibly, just possibly. <laughs> anyway, never mind. It's after our Irish efforts in, in, in no, Harry's game, but maybe, I think you may, could. maybe we should pass. <laughs> um, but I tell you, I was thinking, that's a terrible um, Scottish accent from Celia Imrie. Mm. And then I found out she is actually, actually Scottish. Is, yes, she is, indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Well, it's, it's funny, actually, Sela Imri is in this. I mean, we, we should really talk about what it is we're... Yeah, um, let's do that first. We're, Go. We're, we're talking about it. So, yes, we are uh, today. We're going to talk about uh, a four-part serial from 1981, which which at the time had made quite a lot of impact and, and seems to have resonated down the years. Uh, and it's called The Nightmare Man, based on the book The Child of Vodgenoy by... David Wiltshire, uh, adapted by Robert Holmes uh, from that book and directed by the mighty Douglas Camfield. I'll read the back of the notes. I'll read the back of the notes. Gosh. Um, uh, starring, you, well, you don't need that, but dramatised, you don't need that either. Based <laughs> on the 1978 book Children of Vodgenoy by David Wiltshire, which I've just told you, The Nightmare Man was adapted by Robert Holmes and directed by Douglas Camfield. Both Doctor Who veterans first broadcast in 1981. This sci-fi chiller left a lasting impression on viewers. I basically just said that. 
Yeah, you said all of that. You wrote the DVD cover without knowing. A, a remote, a remote Scottish island. Island, yes. Uh, is quietly settling down for the winter. But, <laughs> but amid the fog that envelops, not envelopes, it envelops the island. I had Good. to check that earlier. <laughs> Something horrific is on the prowl. A slavering, monstrous creature has killed twice, leaving just a trace of radiation, gruesome dismembered corpses, and a baffled local police force. Are you, are you, are you trying to be funny? Are you trying to be funny? <laughs> a flickery film of one of the murders, murders seems to show a terrifying, shadowy monster. But could this brutal killer really be from another world? And, <gasps> dun, dun, can it be, and can it be stopped before it inflicts more carnage? No, carnage on this lonely island. No, it can't, because at least five people are killed. But there we go. <clears throat> Blah. Yes, the Nightmare Man. The Nightmare Man, yes. Very popular. Now, was it, though? Because this is a programme that until it was released on DVD, mm. I'd never, ever heard of. Oh, right. And... Never had any knowledge of. Uh, and then I watched it about five, ten years ago, whenever mm. it came out. And I thought, yeah, that was kind of okay. I quite mm. enjoyed it. But I hadn't thought about it since. I think you had to be there at the time. Because it kind you of... You had it, to be there. It turned yeah. up on Friday nights and I think basically scared the bejesus out of people. Uh, it's, it's odd, really, because in, in this area you've got things like uh, Armchair Thriller doing yeah. this, the serial thriller. Uh, yes. And yet this is a complete one-off. It, it exists as a four-part thing that turned up on Friday night uh, and people watched it. And it's not uh, there wasn't another one. It wasn't part of a series of different um, you know, mystery stories. It was sure. just there as a one-off and went away. And people who watched it at the time were quite sort of taken with it and mem you know, remembered it. And it was a bit like the, um, you know, if you think about the... Sorry, here we go. What are they called? Uh, public information films, you know, that stick yeah. in the brain and have yeah. stuck in them. So, so it was one of those things that stuck in the minds of the people who saw it at the time. Gosh. And yet it was almost kind of forgotten about. Yeah, absolutely. So I should declare, mm. I feel like I'm declaring something in a court, that <laughs> I have a book called The Nightmare Man by Michael Seeley, which is a behind-the-scenes mm. guide to the series. Ah, you um, bought it, yes. I talked about. I, I talked it. with him about it on my oh, very programme. Indeed, I did. Well, I like to support Phantom Films, mm -hmm. and I wanted to support Michael Seeley for writing it. Although I'm slightly baffled that anyone wrote a whole book about this series. Because mm. um, it's, what, it, two hours of content, isn't it, basically? Yeah. But he's written the book very nicely. Mm. He kind of gives you a feel of how it was to go and film there in Port Isaac in Cornwall. And then it goes into a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown mm -hmm. of the story. Um, oh, that'll be handy. <laughs> well, it would. But I don't know whether we're going to go into it in that amount of detail. But, yeah. Page so, um, one, line one. <laughs> yes, I just wanted to <laughs> plug the book. Because he obviously put a lot of effort into it. And it's nicely put together. Although it has that thing that really annoys me about books that are published not not by... Um, I was going to say not by proper publishers. Rude to Phantom. But it's where the text goes all the way from the all the way from the edges on the back of the book cover. So there's no space. It just annoys me. It's just such an obvious design thing. Um, anyway. Shush, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> He'll cut that, don't worry. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> 
But yeah, the, yeah, Nightmare Man. It's it's an odd beast. It really is. In in many ways, it's an odd beast. Uh, ironically, but um, what I uh, what interests me is, of course, there are two there are, there are two sort of things that get me about uh, the Nightmare Man. One is it feels you tell me it feels like <laughs> a sort of random Doctor Who doc, Doctor Who story without the Doctor in it. Totally. Uh, but also, it feels like four different types of story bolted together. Okay. Uh, and maybe this is kind of the structure of the four-part serial, uh, and maybe I, I, I shouldn't be quite... But, but I always think that episode one is written mm. like, uh, like a murder mystery. Okay. Episode two is written like a horror story. Yeah. Episode three is written like a sci-fi uh, story. Yeah. And episode four is written like a Cold War thriller. Yes, you're dead right. And call, I feel Martin. that each one has a slightly different identity to it. And, and I think yeah. it's, each one is actually played as if it's a different kind of thing. Uh, specifically, uh, is it Tom Watson who plays the pathologist? Oh, I should find that. No, I think it is. Is, I think, there, a, I think is there a cast list in this I think, book? I think, I think, it's, I think he's Dr. Goodry. Yes, Dr. Alan Goodry, yes. in fact. Mm. Oh, I, I, the, the pathologist, I just think that there are moments in this plot where he plays the part of the um, the Van Helsing in the horror yeah. film. He sort of there's a, there's a moment where he goes, hey, "It was the right head that you found," <laughs> <laughs> and and he's just standing there doing it with his pipe. Well, I don't know, I can't remember if he has a pipe or not, but he's just sort of standing there leaning on on various fire. In my memory, he's leaning on various fireplaces, going, "Hey, the beast is out tonight." <laughs> Totally. It, ten years earlier, John Laurie would have played this part. <laughs> Absolutely, he would. Can I tell you how I? It struck me. My my mm. main big headline for this was mm. "Take the High Road meets Doctor Who," <laughs> 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 or more specifically, "Take the High Road meets Terror of the Zygons." But <laughs> but I think it's interesting because on the whole it does look it, it's it's shot on videotape yes you know um which I'm, I'm trying to think of a comparable production which is probably robot in doctor who isn't it which where the the, the ob and the interiors are all it, made, it reminded me a bit of survivors because that's all like that hmm yes possibly yes but it sort of feels a bit at times a bit stagey yes and and sometimes a bit flabby and 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 sometimes there's um there are moments in it which are trying to be moments of levity that sort of feel slightly out of place and you actually feel that this would have worked as a two-hour movie a one-off hmm. whereas it feels a little bit i know it's you know i know ultimately you know 29 minute episodes it's, things are always going to be padded because there's more more stuff than there is actual plot but it's just that there were moments where you were they were trying to make little bits of banter in the police station or something it just felt sometimes a bit forced oh, absolutely it did i do think it's a very curious show um mm. i didn't enjoy it as much this time as last time and mm. i don't know why that is but mm. um well, familiarity, I suppose. Uh, I yeah, mean, maybe. If you've seen something before, it you know, it doesn't surprise you in quite the same way. Yes, but I don't think it, it quite knows what it wants to be. And that relates to what you said. It doesn't have cohesion because it moves between those different genres. And it just feels a bit obvious in places. And yet, the twist is not obvious. It's really quite good when we get mm. to it. And it's quite a mm. clever Oh, it's a clever story. story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I remember when I talked to Michael Seeley, he was saying that 
is it the production assistant or the had gone off with a set of books to read over a weekend and this was the one she thought was the best one to make into a serial. Well listen, the other thing about the book is all of the cast had read the book and they all agreed mm. that the book was way better than the script they were actually filming. Mm. <laughs> Number yeah, one. Fair enough. And also all the way through the book when it says the differences between the book and the scene that we actually got. The scenes that are described in the book are always so much better and so much more nuanced and clever. And everything in the TV version is just so much more obvious and what you just choose to do because of constraints or costs. Or It's such a shame because it's the lack of inner life in mm. in this series, which is in the, um, is in the, in the book. But then again, you see, you've got this. This, I mean, apparently the 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 murders in the book are quite gruesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and 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 there's a lot of. I mean, one of the things about television generally is what we say about show don't you know show yeah. don't tell, and and yet obviously you can't show, so you get a lot of reactions to hideous things, but you don't see the hideous things, and that's perfectly reasonable at whatever it was, 8 o'clock sure. on a Friday night. I, I get that. But it's just there are... It does kind of... It makes it a bit tame at times. Yeah, very. Very tame. And it feels like there's the constraint of the time slot. But but if you're going to make it successful, I think it absolutely would have to um, show more, I think, and be more horrific. I think it should be a horror tale and be more exciting. But and I think that's one of its shortcomings. I watched the Nightmare Man with my fifteen-year-old son because he was ah. staying with me for two nights, and he, I you know he's probably he's usually very reluctant to watch all the TV, but he sat down and watched it all with me, which I was quite surprised about. We watched it in two sittings, mm. but um, his kind of takeaway was he thought it was a good plot, but he thought it was he thought it was poorly executed and not interesting enough, quite slow, and he didn't think the acting was all good. But it, that was quite a good review from John. <laughs> it's just a pretty early um, Celia Imri job, isn't it? It um, is, mm. yes. I, I had issues with Celia Imri in it, just because I kept thinking of Miss Babs in Acorn Antiques. Ah, and interesting. Also... <laughs> uh, yes, I, it was actually, um, funnily enough, what I got, I got a Victoria Wood vibe as well. Yes. <laughs> Yes, but so it was that bit where she would actually do the, um, you know, she did the Scottish accent in yes, in, yes, mm. in in Valderie when she says mm. it was a cold and frosty morning. That bit mm. in the one with yeah. the Sims, yes, when they're mm. pretending to be Scottish people, mm. and yes, and and oh, all they all they're selling crap on television. I can't remember now, but uh... oh, 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 that one as well. Oh, I see. Mm. Yes, there was there was the play in which she's mm. with Victoria Wood, but there's also. Yeah, the, the person who's selling crap on the infomercial. Yes, you're right. Yes. Now, this is the time of year when we're faced with that thorny problem, insulation. Because, as you know, a lot of expensive heat can be lost through ill-fitting windows and through gaps under doors. And, of course, elderly people often live in very cold and drafty surroundings which they can't afford to insulate. So, why not kill two birds with one stone? Inviting an elderly person into your home and getting them to lie down against the bottom of the door. <laughs> It'll make a nice change for them and make a cheap draft excluder for you. 
Yeah. Anyway, there we go. But that was uh, that was just part. Every so often, I got moments of that sort of crept in, and it bothered me because Celia Rimri is, is is very good and everything like that. Weirdly, I'll tell you another thing this week because I was watching this this week, yeah. and I, and I was at the same time uh, for my own personal amusement. Amusement, even I've been watching uh, Between the Lines, which is a, a show oh, yeah. from the early nineties, which had Francesca Annis in it. Oh. And so that was the start of that thought. Sorry, yes. All the, so on on uh, on on. Uh, I think it was uh, Tuesday afternoon. I, I watched the Nightmare Man. I was watching uh, Between the Lines with, uh, which also featured. So you had James Warwick and you had yeah. Francesca Annis, who may turn up together in another show that they we may, may well. be talking about at some point. But yeah. I just thought it was this interesting. This is all that those so well two, planned. I know, but those two sort of were just in two separate shows, and and it really started to mess with my mind. Anyway, Indeed. James Warwick is our our. Sterling upstanding lead in this. Yeah, wearing an awful lot of eyeliner, particularly in episode one. Episode one's eyeliner was just something else. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe this. But you just watch the scene in the shop, dear listener, when an he ex, comes in. An ex-soldier in, in, in a range of roll-neck sweaters. Yes. Um, mm. I, does he succeed as the, as the strong male lead? I think it's interesting that, generally speaking... I think it's um, interesting that it's generally speaking. That's a classic Martin hedging before he says something. <laughs> no, generally speaking, he is supposed to be the lead in it, but actually he's very much sidelined in the final episode. And I do Yes, that's... by the glorious, glorious Jonathan Newth, who is so good as mm. a soldier. Mm. I mean, this is just before he got the part of Clifford in Tenko. Ah. So he recorded his scenes in Singapore for the mm. first two episodes of Tenko, just a few months after The Nightmare Man. And, yeah, I think he's superb in this. He does sort of steal it from under everybody, doesn't he? Particularly when he, beca- he has the reveal. Mm. As, but not before that, he's kind of like piffling about in a mm. jacket. But Well, they're know. doing that thing as they're trying to set him up as he may be the killer. Yeah. So he's just walking around and being suspicious. So occasionally he'll he'll emerge from a fog bank and look through binoculars for for no very good reason other than, well, he's he's observing because he's but, he's, he's up to no good. But the thing is, no one ever believes he's the killer. I would say that there's, what would happen if this was made today? Mm. Um, you would definitely have a less linear plot, and mm. you would pr- pr- probably would have a sex offender or someone who was a bit dodgy who was actually, did rape someone. And that was kind of confusing the actual issue of what's actually going on. Because it's just too obvious that there's this creature, this person, you know, that is the threat. Mm. And you never believe it's anyone else. Mm. Well, that's the, um, what's his name, the escaped convict on the moor in the Hand of the Baskervilles, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, it's it's that same basic Absolutely. who then yeah. gets killed by the... The actual hound. I mean, in some Which ways, is exactly that's the hound of the basketball. But that's what I was expecting. I was expecting that trope, and because it wasn't there, I thought actually it was a, some t- sometimes a trope's a trope for a reason because it, it's neat and it works. And I just felt it was missing. Should we dig into each episode in turn? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, episode one. Can I just talk about that yes. bloody actress who played the woman who was on the short? Oh, for the, the fur coat and no knickers lady. <laughs> yes. Who was so, not ugly, but so stodgy. And apparently we were meant to believe that um, James Warwick's character, Mm. Gaffigan, um, fancied her because she was this gorgeous woman. They could have cast someone who was at least a little bit attractive. (laughs) This dumpy woman in this coat 
who's meant to have all eyes on the island on her. It just shows how dull island life is. <laughs> but honestly, I'm like, no, there's just, you have to cast a femme fatale in that role. So it, it has that sexual thing and, and this excitement of, oh, yes, this gorgeous woman. And she's been weird. I think it's interesting, really, because uh, you actually look at that section specifically. Yeah. Uh, you get the lady standing on the quay who kind of ignores Jonathan Newth when he says, well, goodbye. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then you get the sort of <laughs> noises. And then, really, she's kind of forgotten about. And then, then they find a body. And so there's well, no the, sense the, of real jeopardy there, is there? No. And in the book, I'm, I won't say this all the way through because mm. I'm not going to do... I'm not Michael Seeley and I'm not doing his mm. book. But she goes back to her house alone and she's attacked at her house. And you, you see all that and you find out about her inner life and stuff. And, yeah, you're just not invested because it's just some woman who doesn't look attractive who was like, oh, that's the person who everyone's meant to fancy. Why? And she's just only in it for a brief second. So, do you know what? She was there for two days in Port Isaac, that woman. She got two nights in a hotel mm. for that role. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least she didn't have to travel all the way up to Scotland or she would have looked really knackered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we should say that, actually, yes. We're in Port Isaac, everyone. This was doubling for the, what is it, the north, uh, an island off the north of Scotland or the west a remo- of Scotland. A remote Scottish island. Thank you. Known as Sky, but, but upside down. <laughs> yes, but this harbour is actually Padstow. That's mm. where we start off. It's Padstow mm. of um, Rick Stein's ah. fame and the Steel Ice Band song. Well, at least so there's, so, a yes. decent, so there's a decent cafe, is what you're saying. Yes, mm. definitely. But, um, yeah. So, anything else from this? Uh, these opening moments that you wish to comment upon, Sir Holmes? Um, not really. I, it's, I, you get, I don't know, you get that thing that you get a lot now which or in these kinds of things which is unexpected exposition so so for example when we first meet celia uh who is playing fiona fiona patterson um <laughs> she's drawing you know and and she's drawing these maps that she sells in her eye we i a wee shop. But she's also drawing the Loch Ness Monster in a link mm. to Terror of the Zygons, Douglas Canfield's Indeed. last work. Well, not last work, but one of his Which was also shot not shot in Scotland. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's a theme here. Uh, but it's, it's this, those sort of slight moments where she says things like, cartography is one of my hobbies. <laughs> yeah, you just don't buy it, do you? And you think, but is it? Oh, yeah. Is it? Well, it's just stuff that will be useful in the plot later gets dumped here, you know, and... Because she's the one who ends up being the guide, you know, later on when they can't, because it's foggy and everything like that. I can't believe for one minute that Ordnance Survey didn't cross over to the island and just do an Ordnance Survey map by 1981. <laughs> and then we have to rely on Celia Imrie's hand-drawn efforts. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't buy it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I see you working on next season's souvenirs already. Listen, there's more profit in these than suntan oil. I blame the common market. What do you charge for them, Fiona? Five like that. Ten if they're framed. Isn't it amazing what people will buy on holiday? Can I fix you a little strychnine or something? Or something, please. And then there's, uh, you know, there's a, there's an awful sort of... Um, oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. There's an awful lot of ogling because she's the only woman in the, on the island. But, <laughs> yeah. well, but apparently, yeah. can I tell you, see the Emery loved the fact that she was the only woman in the entire cast. Well, there you go. All the attention she got. But Everybody would look after you. Yes. It is, mis- well, possibly 
I was thinking differently, but hey. But it does feel quite misogynistic. It's it's a shame that she's the only character, female character, with anything to do. Mm. Really, cartography is one of my hobbies, and you can buy <laughs> this by only sending five pounds. <laughs> Um, it was 50 pence. 50, 50, 50 we are earth pence to this box number. <laughs> no, no, stop it, stop it. Um, the moment where I, I suddenly shouted out at the TV screen, concrete boots, the guy, is it, is it the guy from Terror of the Zygons? It is. The Canadian. It is. The Canadian guy. I, I don't think he's the, he's not, I don't think he's the caber. I think he's the chap. No, he's not. He's, he's the, the guy who owns, says concrete boots. He's the, the, he's the yeah, engineer. Yeah, he owned, or he, he works for the oil company. Yes, that's exactly. That is he. I couldn't believe that, again, we had this Canadian suddenly waltzing up, being very Canadian mm. amongst all the Scottish people. It was just like, oh, wow, you're going back to that Zygons thing. A Canadian Pardon. in a fur hat. Yes. Considering all the Russians that are around later. Ooh. He also has Chekhov's camera about mm. his person, doesn't he? Oh, well, he yeah, they, they make a big... I mean, that's one of those things. The, the hair-trigger camera, which uh, has to be pointed out at that point. And, and indeed, you know, you have to make sure that whenever you touch this camera, it goes off. Oh, it's just, you know, because cause that's going to be... That's going to come in handy later. <laughs> I mean, I know that's how drama works, yeah. but it doesn't have to be so obvious. I mean, I know you've only got, like I say, these half hours to tell your story, you know, but... Uh, yeah. But yeah, it is. It is weird, you know. Um, there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of weirdness to the way the the characters are introduced. It's like James Warwick's character. You know, he's a dentist. We find out very quickly he's a dentist. We find out very quickly he's a golfer. You know, he yeah. goes golfing in the fog because he's mad. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, are you ever going to find that ball? How are you ever going to find that play? I mean, I know little about golf, but I suspect a foggy day is not the day to play it. <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me. That's so funny. Um, but also, he's a former paratrooper, is he not? Mm. Which is odd. And I just feel like he's anything the plot needs him yes. to be in that mm. moment. Well, really. I, the, the former paratrooper thing is purely because he knows how to handle a gun at the end of the show. That, yeah. That's that's why he's there because because otherwise I mean the thing is I I I feel the the hand of Camfield in this, you know, and he's and he's very uh, militaristic approach. He's very he's he's known for having a very uh, army based approach to absolutely to yeah. his uh, productions or or having a very like running them like a military campaign as they used to say, and I think that anything that felt a little bit suspect military wise he would probably have stepped in and said well he, he, he's gonna to have to know how to pick up that gun in the end so make him an ex-paratrooper or something because there's really very little reason for him to be a paratrooper in this but especially a paratrooper who goes on into dentistry because I know, it's so odd. except for the um when the when he has to work out what the parachute is later on in the plot yeah know, and it's like it's a parachute you know, but I mean, <laughs> yes, exactly. Other people can identify parachutes other than paratroopers. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, there is a little bit of effort to try and make it look like maybe our dentist is the dodgy uh, killer person. Not enough, though. But it, never but it, enough. But it never gets pushed. I mean, there is a nice thing in the first episode, uh, which is the the woman in the pub who basically says the vic when the when there's rumours that there's been a body found. And they sort of say, oh, it's bound to be a woman. It's always the woman gets killed. And I think that's an interesting, sly look at 
yeah, basically, murder mysteries always seem to have a young woman. You actually get to the point where you can't watch them anymore because, oh, look, it's another young woman in peril. Hell, Kelsey yeah. Breeze, you know. Well, I think your face is not an islander. What makes you say that? Hands, mean. Soft. Well manicured. She's not been mending any fishing nets or digging potatoes. Which is also meant to set up the, the feeling that Fiona's going to be in peril. But she, she never is, which I find to be quite a surprising fact. She's never in peril at any no. moment. In fact, um, to be honest, there are moments when people are left on their own that you actually think, um, oh, well, they're bound to be the next victim, like the policeman or the... Uh, yeah. Or indeed, uh, James Warwick, you know, sorry, Michael Gaffikin himself uh, goes goes off out into the night one night, and you think, well, we're going to get a, you know a bit of a, oh, he's going to get stalked by the monster and everything like that, and it kind of doesn't do. Maybe maybe that's the thing; it's it's playing with us because it doesn't do some of the things you would expect it to do. Yeah, but by playing with us in that way, it just lets us down because we think, well, this should be happening, and then it doesn't happen. So it's kind of playing with us in a way that is not dramatically satisfying, mm. in my opinion. Well, you see, Gaffikin doesn't get suspi- any suspicion. He finds the body on the golf course in the fog, and then we jump cut to the police. We don't. There's no. The, the, you know, there are a couple of asides between two of the coppers who sort of say, mm, "What do you think? Do you think he's? You know, do you think he's an all right kind of chap?" But they don't say it that way, obviously. I mean, to be fair, we have got the great Morris Roves and the fabulous James Cosmo as a as a, a duet. Of I mean, that's such such a good duo, isn't it, mm. to have as the policeman? Brilliant casting. Well, James Cosmo was one of those actors when I was a kid, you know. He, I, he used to turn up, I think he turned up in his like Dick Barton, and he was one of those actors that then I'd see him in something else and I'd go, oh, that's the bloke from Dick Barton. I, I, my mind as a child couldn't quite grasp that people could be in other things, <laughs> if you see what I mean. But I always sort of felt a sort of sort of sense of wonder whenever James Cosmo turns up. He's still, he's been working, you know, right up to date and everything like that. The, the, the thing is, again, is I've also this year watched Morris Roves in Tutti Frutti and he's phenomenal. You know, I'm not sure either of them are phenomenal in this. He gets given some really dodgy lines. I mean, he turns up at the beginning and he's on his jog and he, and again, everybody knows Fiona. <laughs> Fiona is well known by everybody, and they all seem to basically treat her like their her, their favourite daughter somehow. Like yes, they do. Protective thing going on because our father died <laughs> only three years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you about that scene yep. because Morris Rose decided that he would wear a tracksuit and come running up. He, <laughs> was, he was originally meant to be in his police uniform, but he thought, wouldn't it be more interesting if we saw him jogging in a bit out of breath and a bit sweaty, because that gives us a different take on him and. And Douglas Canfield was like, yeah, that's a really cool idea, do it. And I th- I haven't read later on into the book about that bit later on, but there's the bit where he's, re- he's, he's biting an apple, he's eating an apple, really very obviously, whilst all the troopers are arriving in the village and he's just nonchalantly chewing on an apple. And it's kind of... You can see that Morris Rose had quite a lot of input into how that character was portrayed and... and or at least physically, the things he was doing. Um, but I feel like... This, I feel like the script let him down. Yeah, well, I think that's a scene, again, what they're trying to do, because in, in, in episode one, which I say I maintain is a murder mystery, they're setting up the various suspects. So he's just another man 
you know, th th you don't know he's the policeman at that point. So he's just another figure who comes out of the fog and might be the killer, as is, as indeed is the, you know, the Canadian, as indeed, you know, there's all these figures who just pop up because you've got to populate some suspects. You've got to put some suspects out there. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly concerned about the first episode, about the number of times that the the person who did this is referred to in various, he's a loony. <laughs> All the time, I know, I wrote that down. And even John said, can you please stop saying loony? He said that out loud. I mean, John, I guess, is is very politically aware and astute, as a, as any kid of his age would be now. But he pick, he calls those things out all the time. And it's like, oh, please don't say loony. Oh, he was really not happy about that. But it was a lot of times, wasn't it? Mm. I felt that a lot of the script was really poor. It was really melodramatic, and and also the, its delivery as well. It's like, what's wrong? And it's like, you know. Whereas, I'm immediately thinking of Tom Baker would say, "What's wrong?" In a sort of very sort of sober way, and and sort of you know with gravitas. But everything's like, oh, let's deliver it like this. And it's just like, oh, come on. If if you lean into that melodrama, you're not going to believe it. And it's just, it needed it needed an actor who gave it the feeling that you were actually in more danger than you were and i don't think there was much of that it's it's like that that line which is supposed to make you concerned that that when they when the pathologist is examining the body and he says well it wasn't a weapon it, he was just they were, she was just torn apart with bare hands now that is a disturbing thought you know and it sticks with you and yet somehow it's kind of throwaway in this and I don't know, I, but if somebody actually did that in, you know, in in the in a Hammer film, they'd go into extreme close up and go, "Hey, he was torn apart with his bare hands," <laughs> you know. And maybe that would be awful too. But it's just interesting that it, it's kind of more, "Oh, was he? All oh, right, okay, la la la," you know. But again, this is part and parcel of maybe maybe that's the style that they're, they're going for to make it more run-of-the-mill, more ordinary, which some people think, you know, it's the Yeti and Tooting Beck thing. If you, if you do these things in a more ordinary-seeming environment, maybe that works better. Yeah. So let me tell you, episode one went out on the 1st of May at 8.20pm, and it was watched by nearly 7.5 million viewers. But subsequently... Every further episode only received just under six million. So obviously, the first episode didn't grip people enough. Um, it was reviewed in the Sun, that bastion of of media quality. Quality, quality. yes. Um, let me just read this. Oh yeah, cu cultural. Oh yeah, culture, culture. Yeah, go on, be culture. Go on. <laughs> There's something nasty lurking in the heather of a Scottish island. It snorts a lot and rips people to pieces. For a moment, I thought it was the bear which escaped up there a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but they caught him, didn't they? Yeah. You can tell when the thing is on the rampage, apart from the appalling snorling no snort snorting noises, the, the screen turns a shade of vermilion. It's all too silly for words, but I'm hooked. And I'll stick with every ridiculous minute of it until we find out whether the murderer is another escaped bear, the Loch Ness Monster, that nice dentist doing a Jekyll and Hyde, or the thing from outer space. Mm. Hey, there's something terrible in the village in Scotland. Is it that dress that Celia Imrie's wearing that's so glamorous? And it, didn't she say it was a bit um, racy as well, or something? Aye, it, was, aye, it was quite short for this village. Although you know, that's kind of you know. I mean, there are still parts of Scotland which you know have a very sort of um, 
what's the word? Not partisan. What's the word I'm looking for? It's a Presbyterian approach to such things. I mean, their their relationship was actually a little bit edgy and risque for the time. Oh, I suppose it was. That hadn't occurred to me. Mm. Yeah, but it seems very tame today. Well, they're unmarried. I mean, there's certainly a moment when J James uh, Warwick is putting his shirt back on in, <gasps> in front of the fireplace. That's disgusting. Uh, which rather implies they've been up to shenanigans. Shenanigans. As I live and breathe. After their meal. No, it's going out for that meal that makes them realise who the missing person might possibly be. But, because, but they're very know. slow. It's the only other woman that's been talked about. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, the episode ending with the hair, oh. the hair trigger. Mm. Um, and a freeze frame. Yes, freeze frame, which is good old um, Doctor Who of earlier. November the 17th. Weather prevented any observation today. Nor was I able to reach the South Cliff. Since I ringed three adult birds last year, I would be interested to see you. Damn sheep. John immediately declared after the episode, and he said, "Well, I could have filmed it so much better than that. It was so cheap." So that was his. That was his take. But this is the great Douglas Camfield. Yes, but is he great in this? I think the direction's quite lacklustre. I have to say, other than when the the troops arrive later on and they do all their troop business, I do think it's kind of there's so many opportunities for things to have been from different angles, and I'm not convinced at all. Sorry. <gasps> I mean, this direction for Who is so much better than this, don't you think? Camfield's reputation is, is you know, is very high. So it's difficult to turn around and say, this is, I mean, I know it's quite late career for him and so on and so forth. Is it one of those things that for whatever peculiar reasons it would have worked better on film than video? Is it just the video I think, cameras? I that think that would have made a huge difference. I really do, yeah. But it was to do with the model they were moving to then, and I don't think there was any... I think he insisted on rehearsal time because he was an old-school director, um, mm. but... Well, the performances would have been the same, you know, probably most of the setups would have been the same with film. I just wonder, is it just something that would have worked better on Yeah, it gives, it gives you a different quality. Certainly the location, you know, exterior locations would have been so much better on film. Uh, yes! Mm. It's an odd ending, though. I mean, again, because you've got this this thing about the weird teeth sort of being set up and everything like that. Yeah. And and then and obviously we get our our strange and peculiar gentleman in in the tent, and you get the and again the uh, Chekhov's camera goes flashing away. Yeah. And, uh, and that's going to come in handy again. Weirdly, it takes a long time for the plot to get round to that camera. It really does. Far too long. I'm like, come on. I'm tapping my tapping my imaginary watch on my wrist. And the and what you see, you know, when when she does the tapes. I mean, this is jumping quite ahead in the plot. When she does the tape slide presentation, <laughs> the convenient audio tape reminded me of the demons when they suddenly have that slideshow in the pub. <laughs> you know, it's funny again. I, I, we talk about how you know modern television plots 
uh, concertina stuff that used to take half an episode back in seventies and eighties. You know, like because of mobile phones and because people have cameras in their pockets and yeah. all this kind of. Yeah. Thing. And 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 it's kind of one of those moments when everybody sits and they draw the curtains so you can look at the tape slide and you just kind of think, yeah, <laughs> the world is not like that anymore, is it? No, but also this this dramatic happening on this island is going to change island life forever. I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a mercy because it's so boring there. <laughs> <laughs> ah yes, but you're a wild type, aren't you? I, I'm actually thinking I quite like the look of that place. It's, in fact, if, if less happened, I'd be happier. Oh gosh! And and the fact that they all keep lots and lots of lovely layers on all the time. You'd probably be perving after that ugly woman as well. What's she called? Sheila Anderson. <laughs> After people, I'm far too old for perving after people. You'd be protective of Celia Imry. She'd be like one of your own daughters. Oh, she wouldn't look at me twice. I'd be, I'd be the old. No, commander. and I'm saying you'd be protective. She would roll of her eyes whenever I walked into the shop. I know you'd just be a fatherly back. figure too. That's hardly. <laughs> then, like not now. Grumpy sod. I'd be that grumpy sod. <laughs> I did think it was a bit weird, the Doctor sort of kind of testing James Warwick's intentions a bit and saying, oh, I'm kind of like a father to her and I delivered her and all that sort of stuff. Mm. It was a bit, it's a bit, I don't know, it felt a bit, I don't know why. Well, yeah, but a lot of things from that era do, don't they, now? Because we're not giving the the actual women agency to make their own decisions. It's a very, it's a very male society and it's and it's basically saying oh she needs looking after when you know basically fundamentally she doesn't i mean she's already been proven that she's you know she's kept, she's walked all these paths she knows every inch of this island you know and she can draw maps oh and while and, and she can develop film because she works in the chemist ah, all, all these useful things about her her character yes um, and she's come back from that wild London. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, I imagine Jean Boat saying, "She's a whore. She's a whore." <laughs> that, that wild student life she was living. Yeah. I don't know whether it was in that London. It was probably in in some small provincial town. But it was wild enough for the island. Yeah, totally. She's a dirty <laughs> one. She is. Aye, aye, in St. Mary Mead campus. Oh, dear me, it was wild, I tell you, wild. Yeah. If you go down to Maiden's Point, there'll be nothing but <laughs> hell and damnation for the rest of your lives. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a bit aye. Curse of Fenric, isn't it? It does have that vibe, particularly because you Indeed. have the sort of like the point of view of the creature. Which does, that happens and in and the soldiers running around as well. Yeah, it's quite I, I, Maybe the person who wrote Curse of Fenric had seen this. Yes, I think that's a strong possibility of that. What the hell is that? Looks to me like some of your neighbours mislaid. As if we didn't have enough in our plates. Tom, get on the radio to HQ and find out if that thing does belong to the Navy. And get a couple of guys up here and ask McTaggart to bring his boat around to the point. They should be able to load it aboard there easy enough. I want this thing taken back to town and stored safely. The Chandler. Put a guard on it. Right. Oh, and in your spare time, keep an eye on Colonel Howard. Right. Um, yes, so episode two. Anything else in episode two? 
Well, episode two is the one I, I describe as the horror story, really. I mean, you get the, the, the suddenly you get introduced to Pa Boswell's Coast Guard station. <laughs> oh, yeah, is that who it is? I believe so. Or at least it looks very I was like really it. trying to work out who it was because I knew him so well and I couldn't work it mm. out. Is that who it is? I, I think so, yes. Is it Ronald anyway, Forfar? One of well, one of the three lighthouse keepers, not lighthouse keepers, Coast Guard station keepers. <laughs> but that, suddenly it becomes this this lighthouse uh, thing because a, a lot of I mean they they all they I I mean basically you've got a whole horror fang rock thing going on here you've got three lighthouse keepers or coast guards every time you say that I'm reminded of the Victoria Wood joke where that woman thinks she's gonna we think she wants to do a light housekeeping job but it's actually a lighthouse keeper all <laughs> yes, the goodies turned up as well oh yes he was the father in bread how funny. Oh, I was, you know, I was really trying to work out who that was. Okay, carry on. But, but, but for some strange and peculiar reason, known only to themselves, the um, the Geiger counter starts clicking, which adds a layer of mystery. It does. I mean, you know. as well as Horror Fang Rock, it's quite like Seeds of Doom with the Antarctic base, mm. isn't it? Those Coast Guard mm. people. They sort of they exist in parallel to the community, but but they obviously too far away to actually go to the shop every week. It's far too far. Yeah. But they also are keeping an eye on uh, Mr. Tentman. Obviously, not a very good eye on Mr. Tentman. Um, who so, so that he reports into them on his on this. Again, it's weird because now, of course, it's all been mobile phones, and it just the fact that people could be so out of touch. Uh, you know, I know ultimately some Scottish islands still don't have decent Wi-Fi or everything, but you just kind of feel it, it feels that they're trying to get this impression of isolated communities all cut off from each other. There's that sort of thing going on, but they're not really because they, anyone can drive up there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I do think it would have been better if they'd kind of done something more about the fog and how it drifted in and how it kind of was spooky. And it was somehow like the fog was a, a character in itself and had descended and there was something evil and maybe it was something to do with an alien but they didn't play into that enough well it's that malevolent the fog has closed in and cut them off for two for two days yeah whatever it ends up being so but again that's the whole and a sheep has been torn apart and and no creature of this earth could do this and you get all sorts of strange you get mentions of things like genetic experiments and mad scientists and 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 like I say, th this is the episode in which you get it. It was the right head that you found when they go to the cottage and find the rest of the body, or or the head of the body. You know, and it, it's just there is this genuine. They're trying to build it up as a as a horror story. There's some unseen monster on the prowl coming out of the fog, and you know, and ah, oh, it's just, it's just really fascinating that it's a completely different vibe to episode one, which is the standard, you know murder in a small town thing so they mentioned the guy jamie forbes who founds who found the parachute at matheson's croft i'm reading from the book i never remember any of those words in reality um and the guy who found the parachute was originally meant to be um, james cosmo was originally meant to say that this man had been brought up for a, an indecent exposure charge but this was dropped because they thought, well, kids will ask questions of their parents and the parents will be embarrassed. <laughs> so, so, but it's it's a stupid thing not to include because that would have given it a, exactly the... An extra, the, an extra edge. Yeah. The edge yeah. I was thinking it missed, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, they find a thingy, don't they? They find the UFO thingy uh, on the beach. Yes, they do. 
and I love the way that, that, that there's an immediate thing to say, ah, and the, and the submarine itself uh, could only weigh like two hundred pounds. You think, yeah, because when they carry it later, it looks like it's. Made. Oh, I know that was so unfortunate. John and I both looked at it. We just turned to look at each other at the same time and shook our heads. It's like that was ridiculous. That's what I mean about Douglas Canfield's direction. Honestly, come on. You see people holding above them, walking past the window with this supposedly mysterious craft that looks like they're just carrying a regular bloody dinghy. And, oh, just no drama. It has no weight to it. No way. It should, it should feel yeah, more substantial than it is. Ridiculous. I mean, I know the right say there is that line that explains it, but, it, you know, it still looks... The thing is, you can have as many lines as you want to explain a thing, but actually, if it looks a bit like it's made out of polystyrene, you know, people are going to see that, you know? That's that's fascinating, but I mean, there's all this stuff about you know, the radiation and and all this kind of thing, and um, and like uh, it's just I mean, there's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff about you know there was an orgiastic frenzy, you know, mm. and um, and like I say, the, the genetic experiments and, and 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 then they find this tube with the blood on it, and they make a big thing. It's got blood on it and suddenly it's becoming you know all the, what is this terrible monster that's out in the dark so it's a it's a very different beast i, I use the word advisedly uh episode two to episode one hmm. <clears throat> just a bit of background on the celia imray's career path situation after the shoot um i think of part of episode two everyone went to london and they went to douglas canfield's house in richmond and there was a big party and one of the guests was producer Robert Banks Stewart, who, of course, they'd worked together on Seeds of Doom and Terror of the Sargons. And um, his shoestring series was coming to end. So, and its next project was Bergerac. Ah. And that's when he met Celia Imry to become ah, one of Jim's okay. girlfriends, was that night. Fair enough. So there you Fair go. enough. And so there are connections. Yeah, there are. So that's how she got mm. the part of, um, in, I can't remember her name in Bergerac, but she was in it for one series, wasn't mm. she? Paul's your man for, for Bergerac facts. I'm, 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 I don't think I've actually seen it since it was on. <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I weirdly have bought only two series of Bergerac because they're, they were just really good series. It was, I think it's series seven and eight. Anyway, that's unimportant. <laughs> but again, we get a little bit of policeman banter. You know, is that whole thing where he's given a list of stuff to do and then he goes, oh, and in your spare time, can you also do this? And it's kind of like, oh, yes, witty banter, witty banter. You see, the, the interesting thing that struck me, I remember saying this uh, to Mike Seeley when I talked to him about this, is that it feels, especially the serial when it finishes, it feels as if they're setting it up for various mysteries set on Scottish islands. They seem to be setting up these two cops as a as a kind of spin-off. Yes, uh, or otherwise, why bother with that final scene where mm. it's just about them rather than Fiona mm. and and Gaffigan? It's odd. Mm. Anyway, we're not there yet. Stop no, no, we're not. I'm just saying, but, but what, there are these moments of policeman banter, which makes you think that they are setting them up as a kind of well, I suppose you could say a Holmesian double act if you wanted to go down that route. You could, but there certainly is a a, a double act thing going on, as if they are ongoing. Th you know, people. If if Nightmare Man had been as huge as Doctor Who, Big Finish would have done a spin-off with Maurice Rhodes and James Cosmo. They would, if they'd be able to afford James Cosmo. But the thing about the policeman is the amount they put away while on duty. Oh, the whiskey drinking! It's just oh. incredible! Yeah. I'm like, this is not okay. I know you're on a Scottish island. 
in the Outer Hebrides. It's very but... little crime until somebody comes on and tears people to bits. It's so weird. They just drink, mm. obviously, and not even they don't even try to hide it from anyone. It's kind of like, mm. no, we just all drink all the time while on duty. It's fine. Mm. Very weird. Well, I always like to do an autopsy in a fool's stomach. Oh, incidentally, I took that piece of chubbin you brought me back to the chandlery. What did you make of it? Well, there was blood on it right enough. Different group from the woman's, though. Be negative. But it was human blood. Well, of course. What did you expect? Oh, I don't know, Alan. Gaffigan was suggesting that that submarine thing we found might be alien. What, do you mean from up there? Ah, he thought it might be some kind of spacecraft. Well, I tell you, next time I get something wrong with my teeth, I'm going to the mainland. <laughs> i tell you what else was weird was that weird, strangest line about the sound of music from James Cosmo's character, Karch, when he says, um, I blame television. And then he starts talking about films and he's like, um, someone sees the sound of music once too often and something snaps. I'm like, what? Mm. Well, you get, there are a couple um, of pop culture references. You get a Kojak reference at one point. You, you get do. a King Kong reference as well. You do. But it's, but why it's... choose the sound of music when it's... What's... <laughs> it's like It's probably a Robert Holmes joke. I think it is, but it doesn't land. Because you'd think, oh, well, you know, watching Video Nasties, it would have been that time when it was sort of the sort of Video Nasty um, drama around they should all be banned, these X-rated things. And, and instead, all right, he's choosing, choosing the opposite. But it's just, it did not land. Just, I was confused by it. Yes, I was going to say something else. Um, Secret Army code language was very okay. much in evidence in episode three. I really okay. disliked it. It's in the start of Secret Army, it's... It's very much like a low, a low, in mm. that there's like, oh, the kittens have escaped and ah. and they need to be vaccinated and all this bollocks. Ah. The crimson cow flies tonight. <laughs> yes, which a low, a low had great fun with. And actually, Secret Army dropped after the first four or five episodes. But um, here we have Howard having this ridiculous set of... of Coded words. Oh, the phone call. It's ridiculous. The it's, call. It's the, the mother knows best. Is the chicken still free range? Can you close the coop? Honestly. Fuck off. The Russians were. Like, egg collection. Yeah, it was just so terrible. It's like, don't do this ever, TV. Stop it. Yes. Mother asked me to call. Mother knows best. How is her chicken? Still free range, I'm afraid. Then forget the chicken. I've arranged for the egg collection. Can you close the coop? Yes, I can see to that right away. Excellent. Yeah, again, part three is where it starts to become... I feel part three is the sci-fi episode, really. It's kind of when they're trying to think it might be aliens and it might be a UFO that they've found. And, and they start trying to push that as the... as as the thing the, the viewer should be thinking about, if you see what I mean. Oh, is it UF? Is it aliens? Is it UFO? You know. Uh, you get a nice scene in part three, which is Fiona's nothing can ever be the same again uh, reaction, which I think was a very good scene, really. The sense of yeah. loss about how life, you know, because, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about, well, if you want to be with me, you're going to have to move to this island, Mr. Dentist, yeah. you know, and not go off and have and gad about and have exciting lives you've got to stay here and be bored with me <laughs> and make and make teeth impressions forever <laughs> and um, and that's fine um, and, what, and watch, watch me do uh, cartography by, a, by an open fire 
Watch me draw maps of an evening. <laughs> and put Ordnance Survey out of business. <laughs> Unlikely. Absolutely. It's going to be the Patterson maps <laughs> you'll be buying soon. Well, soon. Soon enough. Because <laughs> I know my way around all the paths on the coast. You know. <clears throat> Sorry. Anyway. Uh, but there's a, for example, there's, there's a scene in it where where the, the policeman is guarding the UFO and he says it, it moves, you know, it moves. Oh, yes, moves. but he says that to the doctor mm. guy and... Mm. Oh, it's probably the hydraulics. But, yeah, yeah, so that's number one, <laughs> is like just closing him down. But also, has this has this policeman told anyone else? I don't think so. It's, it's weird. It's like as soon as it happened, you would go and rush and tell someone, say, fuck, this... Shitting alien thing has just moved. He's just like still standing on guard. I mean, how stupid is he? But yeah, didn't didn't buy that. This also includes the line <clears throat> that it's hardly work for a girl, which is oh yes, I did write that down. Mm. But don't you think if you have this spaceship that's just this shiver and this shudder, there would have been mm. something in a way that Camfield would have been able to put that in that mm. there should have been some sort of effect, some ripple mm. would have actually heightened the science fiction excitement of this episode and Even actually eerie music might have yes done it, really. but just mm. something a quick shudder or a vibration mm. but it's just a, a prop that's just sat there mm. Mm. it's and just it's not you not get you don't get a long scene of the policeman just sitting there and it suddenly going exactly you, just, yeah. you didn't need much it's just a yeah. missed opportunity again it's another tell not show isn't it yeah mm. odd so we get towards the end of episode three, where it's the attack at the Coast Guard station, um, which is very kind of like horror film tropes, isn't it? Of the one person going out and you know he's going to get it. Isn't it the guy from Bread, isn't it? It is. Freddie Boswell going out. I'll go on my own. You're going to die! <laughs> yes, exactly. You're going mm. to die horribly. What's for supper tonight, Davy? <laughs> Whatever's on the label. It's done a 50, Neil. The changeover valve on the tank must have stuck or something. Uh, somebody ought to check it. Hang on. I'll go, man. Oh, well, yeah, the other thing is, though, that, that, that struck, struck me about this is before that, is you get, suddenly the island is full of vigilantes. They put together a team of people to go off with shotguns into the night, which I just think, is that how policing works in Scotland? Apparently, it's fine. Fine. Okay, I just wondered. It was just one of those moments. You know. There's nothing weird about that at all, Martin. I don't know what you're oh, worrying okay. about. <laughs> That's true. The, the, the way the way the locals are around here, you may have a point. Oh, really? Gosh. So, into episode four, we have mm. the bit that I think was the best action sequence was probably with mm. the flare gun firing at mm. him. Oh, and... oh, the fire stunt. Yes, mm. that was quite good. Mm. I didn't mm. understand why the guy tried to get out of the window afterwards, though. That was weird. Why wouldn't mm. you stay inside in that? Yeah, place. Well, because because all of them had to die. Yes. And he had to put himself into a position where he could be dragged out of the window and torn apart. <laughs> but then we have, finally, you feel so, like, oh, God. Suddenly, this... Newth turns up in his uniform. I know, and I'm, and I'm like, finally, it's coming together. We've got a state of emergency. He's declaring martial law. I'd follow Jonathan Newth anywhere. I had lunch with Jonathan Youth once. I've said that before on the podcast. I'm saying it again. I don't care. Um, <laughs> he's so good as military. I love him as a military character. He just, you just 
buy him completely. He changes persona as an actor when he becomes a military character. He's just so well, not only that, you buy him as a British yes, soldier. Yes, you do, which is interesting considering he's a Rusky. Mm. Yes. Um, John said, I must mention on the podcast about the walkie-talkie antenna, which he couldn't believe how big and long it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the past is a different country. <laughs> and do things differently there. Yes. It should, surely he's seen the brigadier on his, on his wind-up telephone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but somehow that's older and sort of more acceptable. I don't know. I'd like a word with you, Inspector. With all of you, in fact. What the hell is this? State of emergency. This island is being placed under martial law, and I'm taking control. Martial law? Are you out of your head, Howard? And as the representative of the civil authority, Inspector, you will be required to cooperate with me. So then we discover that the Vodyanoi, or whatever you say, is a Soviet submarine. Just made to look like a spaceship for science fiction trope reasons. Um, well, for underwater, getting through the water reasons too and there were going to be a fleet of them and they're all trained oh god almighty yes there is so much exposition in part four it, it gets to the point at which you actually start i mean what gets me is all our heroes are rounded up and stuck in a golf club i know that's the thing why choose a golf club it makes it so parochial and dull i mean it it's almost as bad as like like a youth center or i don't know it's a golf club's bad enough actually it doesn't need to be any worse than that it's that was one of my abiding memories of having watched it 10 years ago was weirdly that they're in a golf club at the end. I was thinking, I'm sure it goes to this weird location at the end, which isn't dramatic at all. Mm. Well, the whole like all the action takes place on a golf course and all the exposition. I mean, basically, you you get our hero and our heroine stuck in a golf club bar being explained to what was happening and there's a lot of uh i mean basically this this threat of uh, they need a antitoxin because there's some virus that's been released suddenly yeah which which sort of i'd kind of i lose track of quite why that becomes necessary but to save the island they have to have this goop injected into them and they and they go all right yes you're you're a dodgy uh, dodgy russian soldier and you're just going to give this jab yep that's they all fine. put their arms don't out mind. don't they really quickly hmm. none of your anti-vaxxers here and they're just like hmm. quick dose me up <laughs> and it's all blown of course on there being the wrong salute which again is yeah. a very camfield thing so, so, so he does a russian salute and 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 because because james warwick was a paratroop Yes. Immediately, um, Jimmy New turned around and go, "Oh, I got it wrong!" Oh, and says to him in Russian, "Get out, you twat!" I know. I do think he's he's a little too obvious and angry in that moment. I thought that was funny because yeah. because actually, you kind of think most people probably wouldn't have even seen. Yeah, exactly. Well. You know, exactly. If you'd if you'd bluffed it out, you'd probably have got away with it. Yeah, it, if it hadn't been for those meddling Scots. Because he had a little sort of strop, didn't he? I did have a, a vague sort of feeling about how this is kind of similar to also 1981 Day of the Triffids in the sense that you've got James Warwick and Celia Imrie being quite like um, the leads in in Triffids, you know, sort of thrown... Well, I was bought the two set together for my, for a birthday that one year. Ah. They were, these were these two sort of BBC serials were bought for me yeah. as, as, a, as a present. So, so they do... They kind of go hand in hand. I think there was a range that came out that year oh, where there see. was all these one-off dramas yeah. that got released. Yeah. I do like all of the... I do like the... I know there's a lot of exposition, but I do really like, and I, have, I feel I've been, I've really been quite um, harsh on this programme, but um, I do like the stuff with the ganglia and the fact that um, 
there's the, it's basically about the threat of AI, isn't it? This, mm. in which is oh, yeah. which is Absolutely. very topical for now, mm. um, and how it's fused with the man, and the man is taken over, and because of his instinct to kill and his training, that's why he's on the killing rampage. And I think all that makes perfect sense, but it makes sense too late. And yeah, I just, what John suggested, which I think would be a brilliant way of going into an episode five and six was or earlier in the story was that he felt like the, sh- the the ship should have had ganglia still in it trying to find a new host and it should have come out of the ship and got new mm. hosts and fused mm. with more locals and i thought that was a really mm. good idea when the ship became more dangerous yeah and, exactly yeah Cause and, that and basically if any of these soldiers when they picked it up and uh, they'd uh, they'd be connected to it by you know by all those yeah little things that we're sort of used to now but they just they just make it yeah i know what you mean i know i know what you mean maybe we need to rewrite the nightmare <laughs> as a netflix miniseries coming soon well yeah i could see it on netflix but it'd probably be two episodes and probably i don't know um yes so i was a bit surprised by how quick the ending was with jonathan Newth suddenly having to face up to the nightmare man they didn't feel like there was much lead up and yet there was oodles of scenes of the troopers arriving and and doing all their formations in different parts of the beach and it was it was obviously Douglas Canfield showing off that he could he could direct soldiers but it was at the at the um at the expense of other stuff dramatically going on in that final episode and it was also weird that you had the deliberate contrast the juxtaposition of the locals just wandering around the town the village and the police like being um, and the troopers like being there with guns and 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 in and like then you've got the inspector sort of wandering around and saying oh what's going on here then it was it was kind of took away from the suspense mm. and the, the, the jeopardy yeah. doesn't feel very sort of you know you don't actually find yourself caring i don't know again it's one of those strange things that because you watch these things as a four part on a disc and you can watch it all i don't know whether because I find a similar thing with the uh, armchair thriller, it doesn't thrill me as much as it perhaps did when we were watching it, you know, twice a week, and 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 the memory of the episode, and we couldn't rewatch it, and all those things that watching television in the old days was different to watching them now. So I suspect that you might sort of we well, might have been at school sort of saying oh gosh is it aliens is it monsters is it you know we might have all those kinds of questions that might have carried on across a week if there's a week between episodes might it make it more effective but actually just watching it it does feel i hate to say humdrum but very ordinary it does and i think the ending very is very humdrum and i don't mm. understand what how how can the nightmare man just be killed with a gun in the end Mm. It just felt really like, oh, so that gun's just two shots and that's going to do it. Mm. And that was the threat. You can just kill mm. the threat with two guns and two mm. bullets. That seems mm. just... And then everything's cleared away. I mean, again, it's, it's an interesting thing because you do get the sort of Ho-Ho police station ending. Now, I mean, at one point this, you know, this was going to make... Uh, in Skip's career because he he might, you know, solve a big case. But of course there is no case to be solved because the bodies are all taken away by the soldiers. Uh, everything's sort of hushed up, you know, it's, and, it's all and profe- one of those and, mysteries. And professionally it seems really bad that those policemen are just happy to hush it all up. And it's like, oh, it's all tidied up and they're quite happy about that. And it's like, well, that's the ba- bad professional instincts. I know 
there's reasons well, why. Well, there's one moment, isn't there, where someone tries to take a picture of the Vodrinoy capsule and he gets... He gets his film taken off him yeah. and his camera taken off him. So, he's, you know, oh no, it was it was a it was an instant camera, wasn't it? And gets his his photograph taken off him, and, and so the story you feel would get out. Is it going to be one of those things that you know tourists come to the island and people sit in pubs at the end of the evening going, "Hey, you, hey, do you remember the Miller dance of all those years ago?" <laughs> You know, it, I mean, they're not going to obviously tourism. They don't want their tourism to be affected. Uh, you know, but you just kind of feel that there were five murders on this island, or five killings yeah. on this island, exactly. at least. Because uh, I mean, Jonathan Youth and the actual Vodinoy Pat, there were seven killings on this exactly. island. Exactly. And it kind of it does weird me out because I I, I remember uh, specifically I I wondered when when this when this uh, show ended. I wondered whether there was this kind of vague notion that um, James Warwick and Celia Imrie would go off and have other adventures <laughs> where where sudden mysterious events surrounding them. Of course, that can be quite, you know, it, it, the Jessica Fletcher of, of horror mysteries, you yes. know, where they, the wherever they violence. turn up, yeah. you know, they, they, they sort of go on a different uh, holiday and they go and they go and sort of go to. Corfu or something, and some murders happened there, and everything like that. But I don't, I don't think it was, it was even thought of as being a start of a different series. But equally, like I said to you before, there's this also this strange notion that the the duo of the the uh, the police, the policemen, hmm. yeah, they do finish on that. And again, you almost feel, well, you know, is is this a setup for a kind of Juliet Bravo series set on a remote I spot. think it's just Holmes really leaning into his love of, of double acts mm. and mm. little jovial bits. Mm. I mean, a policeman's lot is not a happy one. Oh, damn, the mm. truest words. And it's like, really? is that how you understand <laughs> Cheers! It's bizarre. Policeman drinking on duty mm. again. Uh, Odd. Yes. Um, so, Karchin Inskip, that's the names. Yeah. Karchin Inskip, you could see that, you know, in big Starsky and Hutch titles with them sort of screaming round the corner. Karchin Inskip, yeah, in a, with a big in a, ampersand in a, zooming in out. In a, in a Morris Minor or something. Yeah. So, Michael Seeley, bless him, has written a very lovely book. You should go buy it. But And I think he's written it very well. But I would say that I disagree with his back cover description saying it was skillfully directed by Douglas Canfield and superbly adapted by Robert Holmes. I, I just think it's flat. I think, from what I can read about what happens in Child of Vodinoy, I think it takes out all those things that made that a more fantastical, exciting, inner-life novel. And what it has made me want to do, reading his book, is actually buy Child of Vodinoy. Oh, uh, I have a copy. Oh, have you? Mm. And see I have what it in it's front like. of me, even as we speak. See what it's Although like. mine is called The Nightmare Man, because it doesn't mention anywhere that it was previously published as... Ah... I think it was basically the tie-in for the TV series. Okay. Um, I, I just want to briefly mention what James Warwick did next. So later in the year, he recorded Earthshock, of course, Lieutenant Scott, which he apparently disliked markedly compared to The Nightmare Man, which he really enjoyed. Apart from the fact that his car, which he got from being in Why Didn't They Ask Evans with Francesca Annis the previous year, he bought a big um, special vintage car on, on the proceeds of playing the character in that. And he no, didn't he want to eat? I mean, no. I, I thought with starving actors, no. you think they would, they would want the food. He crashed the vintage car in Port Isaac, or at least it crashed, oh dear, how sad, it never crashed mind. by itself. Mm. So that was his abiding... Due to mysterious powers of, of Cornish, Scottish... And the fog closing in. Um, but 
Of course, he was to be reunited with Francesca Alice again the following year in The Secret Adversary and then the series Partners in Crime, of which more anon. Gosh. Possibly. Possibly. Yes. yes. Anyway, James Warwick. I do like him. I think he's a good actor, but I don't think the, the part is strong enough for him here. Yeah, I found, I found him very cold in this. I didn't find, I didn't really take to him in this at all. He felt slightly miscast to me, but, um, you know... But, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe I just don't particularly take to him as an actor generally, you know. It's, it's one of those, some people you just don't. And uh, I don't find him uh, a particularly strong leading man, you know. I, I even, um, you know, I, I don't know, like I say, seems unfair, but I I never really, I, it just seems, maybe it's just, it just feels like one of those posh blokes walking into me and sometimes it just, <laughs> you know, they're, they're all sort of interchangeable at times. So but, is, but that's just is James Warwick the brother of the other actor, Warwick? Or have I made that up? What, Warwick Davis? <laughs> Stupid boy. <laughs> <laughs> is he Richard Warwick? I don't know. The one who I was married, or at least with, um, Louise Jameson. I don't know. The one who's in Pirate Planet. What's he called? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's not good enough. I know, I'm looking him up. <laughs> not fast enough. It just says he was born in Broxburn, Hertfordshire. Really it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually seem to list I'm any. I'm thinking of someone um, else completely. What's the, pi- who was the, what's the name of the actor in the Pirate Planet? The one who plays Kimus? Um, David Sibley. Okay, so not him then. <laughs> no, not Kimus, the other one. Not Kimmer, sorry. The other one in it. David Warwick plays Kimmer. David oh, yes, Warwick. David Sibley's Palix, that's right. Sorry, yes, is that was... David that was, Warwick. That was, that was my internet giving me the wrong connecting yeah, words. No, yes, is right. David Warwick the brother of James Warwick? Mm. That's what I want to know. I They look quite know. similar. Oh, right, OK. Maybe they are... Maybe there's a whole host of Warwick cousins. <laughs> they just look quite similar. They must be similar, surely. Anyway, it's not important. So, clo- <laughs> sorry, excuse me. So, closing thoughts on the Nightmare Man. Mm. Um, I think it's it's interesting. Its reputation precedes it. I think it's one of those shows that, if you've not seen it before, it's probably quite interesting. Like I say, it does have these four styles things. Overall, it feels. Uh, I suspect it's one of those things. It it of its the time it was made. It sort of falls between the, the great sort of 70s uh, sort of horror stories and maybe some later efforts that were a bit more high profile. It feels a bit low budget and yeah. not really properly resourced. And I think they made the best of what they had. And it was undoubtedly, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, Friday night is an odd night for that kind of drama anyway, to be fair. But it's uh, it feels that it was successful in its own terms. It wasn't part of, like I say, there wasn't prior to it a different six-part serial. It didn't get followed by another four-part serial. It wasn't part of a season. It was just a one-off, which makes it feel a bit lost and on its own. Weirdly, I suspect, uh, with the connections we made, if they'd sort of put it on in the same slot as Day of the Triffids as of the next another four weeks of this yeah. and then done another sort of six part serial 
of similar. It would have felt part of something. It feels a bit like an orphan program that was just sort of made. But if it wasn't, yeah. But if I was, I mean, I, yeah. But if I was programming, um, I would have thought, let's hide this a bit in the schedules. It's not good enough for a Saturday or Sunday night. It's it's okay. It's a bit diverting. Um, and I think the viewing figures kind of match its slot. Although Friday night's not a bad night. Or is it? Because well, I suppose you, everyone goes out on the Friday night. I don't know. What if you took this? Well, I just feel it's more light entertainment evening. I don't know. If I, I don't, maybe I'm wrong. But it's it's that thing that... Can you imagine the Nightmare Man as it is now, but instead of meeting in the chemist's shop at the beginning... The person who walks through the door is Tom Baker, oh, totally. and Lee, and and Lee, and it becomes a Doctor Who adventure. Yeah, and you imagine Tom delivering when he finds the body torn oh, up in, in at the golf course. It'd be so much better. Can you imagine the gravitas that that would? I know have had? that was my point earlier, which you've just nicked. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. I don't, I'm joking. Just, we're summing up. You know, it's we just, are. I, gee, can you imagine that program as a four-part Doctor Who? It feels like a sort of four-part Doctor Who that they felt was too too strong for, for Doctor Who, so they did this instead. But then it's, it's not it's not that strong, though. I think it's got a bit of blood, you see. But honestly, I just think it's quite tame. And I think if this was part of a Doctor Who season in the Graham Williams era or later, that it would have been kind of like, oh, it's just that one. That's OK. It's kind of fun. It wouldn't be a... Uh, the season survey it's winner. So, it's sort of image of the Fendar, yes. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, That's it's where not, I was going. It's in not Sunmakers, no. but it's kind of it's kind of you know you could feel that it could have dropped in as a replacement script for Image of the Fendal if that hadn't. Well, worked. That's why I said Graham Williams era. That's where exactly where mm. I was in my head. Mm. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get that. I yeah. get that. You know, it does have a sort of st- and again there are sort of moments in it which make you think of horror fang rock, which again is the same same season so yeah it, it is weird isn't it because you kind of I, I mean I know people love it and I know people have written great tomes on it and everything like that it just feels a little bit like a lost opportunity totally maybe that's that's probably what I mean it could it's not uh, you don't want to sit there going yes 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 Williams and Holmes could do better uh, Camfield yes could could try harder but but it's not that it's just that it's okay it's a perfectly serviceable bit of telly it's just yeah, it's okay. I, I think it needed probably a film budget, and I think it needed to have more visceral content to make it more exciting and horrorful. And I think that's just what the story demands. And I think you kind of need almost an inner life of the Nightmare Man itself a bit more, just then going <laughs> and the red screen. I just, I just felt it was just a bit basic. Yeah. He also misses its beats occasionally, which is a shame. Yeah. I, again, I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether Camfield was having an off production or or whether there were other problems. But it just there are moments in it where actually you. I mean, the script. You know, it's not great, but it's serviceable. And you just think if things like we said about the you know the uh, the uh, capsule being locked in that barn and 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 those slight jump scares. The jump scares aren't there really. The, the throwaway banter feels a, a bit lost. Some of the lines feel a bit lost. It's, it just doesn't feel quite as tight as you'd yeah, like it to I, be. I, I'd agree. And also, like, this sort of drama, you really need those light moments. You need good scripting, which would make you laugh out loud. I didn't find anything funny or even amusing during this, the script, during the, yeah, during the scenes. It's odd. So, yeah, my view is that... Um, 
It was kind of diverting. It's kind of nice to have this self-contained serial that's a bit different. I thought the, the plot was, ultimately was clever when it was finally explained, but I felt it was quite slow and and not exciting enough. And as you said, it missed lots of beats, but I, and I also didn't really believe in the two leads in those roles. I thought Inskip was quite fun, Morris Rose, but then the drinking of the policeman all the time was just weird. Mm. The best thing mm. in it was Jonathan Newth, but um, mm. yeah, you know I'm a fan. But it, you said you watched it about 10 years ago. Whenever the DVD came out, yeah. When, what did you feel about it then? Kind of did you feel differently yeah, about it? I, mean, I, I really enjoyed it because I, I wasn't expecting it and it was really kind of, oh, that was different. And I think we watched it in one sitting as well and I watched it over two nights and perhaps the fact that I was watching it with my son and I couldn't believe he was actually watching it with me. It was kind of like, I don't know, maybe I, I was harder on it because I was kind of like wanting it to be better than it was. <laughs> I so maybe, well, that's maybe it. Maybe some things just don't really work as well on repeated viewing. Maybe, you know, if you watched it again in five years' time, you'd have a different reaction again. I think it's interesting that sometimes it's the way we actually watch television yeah. and at, at where we are in our lives and at what age totally. we are does make a difference to the actual overall thing that you're watching. You know, and I, I, because I, I remember liking it. You know, when I first watched it, I did watch it again about a year and a half ago because I was doing the show uh, where we were going to talk about it briefly, and and it's just. Um, it's just interesting to having sort of come back to it this time. I feel a bit more jaded and cynical with it. But I just think maybe if I picked it up again in five years' time, I might go, oh, well, that was entertaining. You know, I, it's it's hard to say. We should just plug your edition of Vision on Sound where you can hear an interview with Michael Seeley talking about The Nightmare Man. Yeah? If I can remember which one it was. Yes. Yeah, we'll put, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can hear what Michael had to say about this series, which he's researched really well. I do love the fact that in the book... He has actually he has actually researched. He went to the production team that still are around. He talked to the cast. He's got really nice little asides from them and, and moments and anecdotes. And I just love that way of researching. So many books that come out are just bloody synopses and episode mm -hmm. guides. And I just mm. this was a nice surprise to find. You know, he'd done the research. Thank you. Does Michael. good work, does Michael? Yeah, does very good work. Exactly. So, I think we're done with the Nightmare Man with mm -hmm. or the Child of Vajonoi. Mm -hmm. So, next time we'll be back to deal with the letter O, with something quite Ooh. different that I've never watched. Never. Off. Nor me. There we go. We'll see. <laughs> so, we'll just sit and go, no, I didn't watch it either, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, what should we talk about? I don't know. You know. Well, this may be our shortest episode ever, which I don't think is necessarily a reflection on The Nightmare Man. But um... it was. As, well, the thing is, I mean, when you're talking about a show that ran for like 30, 40 episodes... You do burble on a bit, even you know. I never only burble, got, darling. No, ever. but it's only got it's only got four half-hour episodes. There's not masses to it, you but know, in I, the same way that yeah. Tenko, you know, sure. you've got three seasons of hour-long episodes. You know. But how I would like to end this episode is we're round the fire. You are going to play the Doctor from the series, talking about the events on the island. So if you could just finish off, remember the time. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> In you, West Scottish. I'm waiting. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yes, I, I, love, I love the rehearsal time. When yeah, yeah, go. Yes. <laughs> I do remember the time when, oh, so many of us died on the island. <laughs> so many of us. A strange creature came out of the fog, although he claimed to be an alien. I thought he actually turned out to be a Russian. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, Russian. And I had 73 glasses of whiskey that weekend, I can tell you. And I know I can remember everything as clear as you're sitting, you three, you 27 people are sitting over there. Oh my God, the pub's burning down. <laughs> On that note, thank you, um, Martin, for entertaining me this morning more than the Nightmare Man did. Um, until next time, I have been Andy. And I've been Martin. You take care and goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> you know, when I told him about the bodge, you know, he almost accused me of being drunk. And then later, when I said we were under martial law, he was convinced I had a bad case of the DTs. Not at all, just working at it. <laughs> a policeman's lot is not a happy one. Truest damn words ever written. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>